0: Welcome to a Kessler Foundation podcast. The foundation is a global leader in rehabilitation research that seeks to improve cognition, mobility and long-term outcomes, including employment for people with neurological disabilities caused by diseases and injuries of the brain and spinal cord. In this episode, we are talking with Dr. Glenn Wiley, director of the Rocco Hortensio Neuroimaging Center at Kessler Foundation. He's also an associate professor at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School. He spoke with Rob Girth, the foundation's communications director.
1: So you know where I want to start. I want to, Jody, remind him, this Jody, our producer, who's doing the recording, for the people that aren't sitting in the room, um, reminded me that you're a woodworker. That's right. So tell me about that. What, what, what does that have to do with your, with your scientific work, if anything?
2: right I mean it's a hobby um like what kind of woodwork furniture or yeah I I do I build furniture um and um yeah and I like to put things together and to build things and whether that's um what's the hardest thing you built so far the hardest thing I've built that's a good question um, I built a, a light, a backsplash for the bathroom that's actually um, a light. So it comes on when you come into the bathroom and um, it stays on for a certain amount of time and um, that's all automatic and it's, uh, the whole backsplash lights up um, through tiles we got that are actually made of onyx. Oh, so there wasn't wood. That was the two. So there was wood involved, oh, was but it? yeah, there was also um, stone and uh, some metal. Wow. That sounds very difficult. I made a little box
1: once in wood shop in like 11th grade. <laughs> that, was right. the, that was the extent. It's a good start. If, if my Cub Scout uh, racing car, does that count? I don't think it does. I don't think that counts. <laughs> That's impressive. And then the other thing that I know now, woodworker, and you live in Vermont, you commute. You don't do anything easy. You, com- you commute to Vermont from New Jersey? Is that I go
2: a- back and forth regularly between the two, yeah. That's crazy, too.
1: It, and then this leads to my other question about the situation, so you went to school in Canada,
2: right? Are you Canadian? I'm not Canadian, but I did grow up in Vermont, so um that explains so I do know where Canada is, <laughs> and I knew that it was an option for school and um and actually, so uh when I started out, I started out going to school for architecture, really in um, Canada in Savannah, Georgia okay, um at the Savannah College of Art and Design, and I went there for about a year. For architecture, and that was great, and I really enjoyed it. But um, but I thought that I should also have a background in engineering, probably because I come from a family of engineers. Oh, do you? And um, so I ended up sort of taking a hiatus from that and going and doing um, enrolling in, a, in an engineering course, and that was in Canada because I had a friend who was going there, and um, and what? then from there I took. Um, other courses, you know, electives in psychology and in philosophy, and eventually I ended up changing my major to psychology and philosophy. And you ended up in Canada instead of in Savannah. And I ended
1: up staying in Canada, yeah, <laughs> to finish up my degree, Yep. And then you went over to Oxford, University of Oxford in England, so what what took you over there? How did you make that transition
2: um so wait
1: let me ask what was your undergraduate degree in then psychology
2: so my undergraduate degree was in was a combined honors in psychology and philosophy okay um and um i was doing i was working on um attention Uh on attentional processes and um one of the um, one of the important thinkers in that literature is, is a fellow named alan allport and um so when I came to the end of my undergraduate degree and was thinking about doing graduate work, I applied to work with him in Oxford, and and that ended up working out. So And at, and at that point, you'd
1: sort of totally given up on the architecture, and you were going to what, psychology, psychologist, or...?
2: Yeah, I was going to... Um, very, I'd given up on the architecture of buildings and sort of transitioned to the architecture of, of the brain and the thought. Oh, <laughs> nicely um, done, Yes. So... Yeah. So I mean, yeah, I am interested in how things go together. And I think that the woodworking is part of that and the architecture is part of that. And the work that I do here is part of that. Um, And what Alan Allport was working on um, was how do we actually instantiate our intentions? So how does the will work? And I thought that was a really awesome question, a really interesting question and um and that was that was a big part of the change from engineering to psychology because in psychology there's so much that's not known whereas in engineering you know certainly in, in first year engineering courses everything is known and your job is to find the answer that the professor knows right whereas in psychology no one really knows right. the answers to a lot of questions and so there's everything to play for and it was a lot more interesting to me how did you
1: make the turn then to where you ended up here, or were there other stops along the way? Like as far as what you wanted to study? Or, or, or do you feel like you are studying what you set out to study right now here? And we'll get to what you're studying here in a little bit.
2: Yeah, I feel like I'm still studying um, the same basic questions. I've, you know, I've, I've, I've started studying a, a number of other related things, um, but all in service of the same sorts of questions. So, at what, at what point did you
1: end up, like, what did, what did you, do? so you, you got your, well, you know what, I have to ask you this first before. Um, so, at Oxford, if they, you don't get a PhD. How right. do you even say it? I, I'm so ignorant on some of these subjects. How do you even say what you have, what your
2: degree is? So, I have a DPhil, which, sta- which stands for Doctorate of Philosophy. Now, in Cambridge, you would get a PhD, which also stands for Doctorate of Philosophy, but for whatever reason, they, they, turn, they switch the letters around. So DPhil. So yeah, DPhil is Doctorate
1: of Philosophy. Ah, okay, that's. I just was curious about that. Um, so then, when, what? What was your next evolution then after you got your uh, DPhil? I'll say it like I know what it is now.
2: Good work. Yeah, um, I, I did an. I did a. Sorry, a um, postdoc at Oxford for a year in um, looking at EEGs because my PhD or my DPhil. Uh, I had worked with fMRI, and then <clears throat> I, w- I also wanted to know about electroencephalography, which is looking at the voltage on your scalp when you're thinking, and um, and so I did a year's postdoc in that at Oxford, and then I came back to the U.S. Uh, and worked at, and got a job in the Greater New York City area um, oh, in, we- a, in a lab where they were putting together EEG and fMRI. Like they it, putting it together to do what with it? What was their to look at the same questions using both modalities? Because um, the great thing about fMRI is it gives you really good spatial resolution. You know, you know where um, where thoughts are happening, so to speak, in the brain, or where there is brain activity. Um, but it gives you really poor temporal resolution, so it's very hard to say exactly when those things happened. Um, Whereas EEG is exactly the opposite. It gives you poor spatial resolution, but really good temporal resolution. And so if you put the two together, you can get a really good picture of cognitive processes. And then the fMRI, just for people like me,
1: MRI, I know what that part is. The f part is functional. The f part is functional. So tell me
2: how that's different than just an MRI that somebody would get in the hospital. Right. So the MRI that you get in the hospital looks at anatomy, typically, and... um, that's done by looking at the density of water in your tissues Um, the fMRI looks instead at blood flow and looks at where the blood is going in your brain and when you use a region in your brain to do some task then the neurons there deplete their resources and they need an influx of blood in order to have those resources refreshed and so by tracking where the blood goes we can track where neural activity is happening so that's the part of the brain you're using,
1: and that's the part you, you can study like, oh, that's where that's happening in the brain. Exactly. Okay. All right. Great. Um, you mentioned your, your family. Um, were there scientists
2: in your family, were, or were they artists, or were they engineers? They were, were mostly they engineers. <laughs> yeah. So my grandfather was a lighting engineer, and my dad um, actually is a mathematician, and my brother is a, an engineer as well. So,
1: Wow. Smart yeah. family. And how did you end up here then at the Kessler Trans? Like, was it a long hop or was there a lot of stops in between before you got here?
2: No, I I came back to the U.S. and, and did a postdoc that turned into a research position um, at the Nathan Klein Institute. And that's where I was putting together fMRI and the EEG. And then um, the job a job came available here working with John DeLuca. Um, they needed someone to sort of... Spearhead the neuroimaging um, effort that they had begun here, and I got that job, and I've been here ever since. Hmm. The and the, the so how many years has that been? It's been over
1: ten. And yeah. so Were you in at the beginning of the uh, fMRI that we have here? Yes. Okay. Oh, so, so, so we'll get we'll get to that in a second. Okay. I want to I want to work my way to that. Because what I have here is my favorite question I've written since I started doing these interviews. Okay, I'm going to read it. It's my favorite. That's because it's my favorite question. Your research seems to fall into three categories, Glenn: cognitive control, cognitive uh, cognitive fatigue, and the neurophysiological effects of cognitive interventions. Why don't you elaborate on that? And I'm saying that like I know what I'm talking about. I have no idea what I can. I know cognitive, right? That's thinking, right? Right. But tell me, tell me a little bit about. Just in general, the kind of stuff that you
2: do, and give me some examples. Right. So let's start with cognitive control, which has been an interest of mine since graduate school, and so that's that's why I went to Oxford to study cognitive control, um, and and that's really the will. That's really what we're talking about. How is it that you're able to to you know instantiate your intentions in your actions, um, and that's just science speak for how does the will work? And
1: and. Do, is there how far have we come on that? Like do we have any idea of how that works? How that?
2: Um, we have we have some idea <clears throat> how it works, and it's a little it's not maybe the most encouraging um, information, but it looks like you know you have the ability to hold on to goals in your in your brain and those goals bias your actions. But they don't determine your actions, and so this idea of an iron will really is a bit of a myth, huh? um your goals can bias what you do, but really a stronger influence is what you've done in the past um so so things this sort of imprinted from what you've done in the past, so you've so every you time you go you do that? something it leaves a trace, and it makes it easier to do that again and um and so you can you know we have this idea that if you you know you hold on to if you're if you have a really strong will you'll be able to avoid temptation and maybe that's true to an extent but really probably what it is is that you know if you're not tempted by chocolate it's going to be pretty easy for you to to avoid chocolate Um, whereas if you've always been tempted by chocolate you're probably going to have a piece of chocolate
1: and my communications degree theory is that it's all genetic it's like if you're genes like, have a part to play do absolutely. They? oh well then i guess i should have taken a postgraduate degree in something else then i, I just think that it, we're machines and that we're just operating based on the program that we have programmed into us and that's all there is to it that's my simple philosophy
2: i think that there is there is truth Carl? to that. I should write a book. We have, yeah. I mean, you come you come into the world with this piece of hardware called the brain, but your um, your experiences shape, do shape that, um, your thoughts and your actions and so on. And so maybe you have a predilection to loving chocolate, and so it would be very difficult for you to avoid eating chocolate. Um, but maybe even with a predilection to to loving chocolate if you'd never been exposed to chocolate then maybe you wouldn't have you know you wouldn't it wouldn't be difficult for you to avoid eating chocolate right okay so that's cognitive control so that's cognitive control and what's you know what is one time when you have to exert cognitive control what's when you're cognitively fatigued Hmm. um, or fatigued in any way so you know how do you how do you run the marathon how do you keep going Um, well cognitive control is probably um, a part of it. Another big part is practice, right? Training. People mm-hmm. who run marathons train a lot, and that sort of mitigates the role of cognitive control. But, um, but still, getting through the day when you are tired requires you to exert cognitive control. But even if
1: you run the marathon, like you said earlier, that you're imprinting all that, all that training is what's maybe getting you through it right is that i
2: think all that training is a yeah is is necessary to being able to do it on the day for sure we know this i mean um not only because it builds up the muscles but also it it allows you to know that you can do it um and yeah and it overcomes that um inhibition you might have to doing something that's potentially deadly like running a marathon right (laughs) you look like a runner though are you a runner? I'm not a runner. Um, I'm I ride horses. Oh, so, okay. Yeah.
1: That's ex- that's that's a lot harder than it looks. Like when people are riding horses and they're riding them right. I used to have a horse. It's like that looks easy, but it's really not. What's going on is, as you know, is much harder looking than it looks from. It's much harder feeling than it
2: looks from the outside. Yeah, you do, and you use muscles for it that you don't use for anything else. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So neurophys, help me here. Neurophysiological, Yes, effects of cognitive intervention. So what does that mean? So that is essentially doing um, before and after um, looking, that is essentially looking at brain activation before and after a cognitive intervention or really any kind of intervention, uh, which is a lot of what we do here at Kessler because we develop interventions to help um, various to help people in various ways. For example, to help people um, encode memories better if they have multiple sclerosis or TBI. And we we can know that they work because you can ask people whether they can remember the information better. Mm-hmm. And you can test that and you can see that it works. But if you want to know how it works, if you want to know the mechanism, then you need to do something more. You need to do something like neuroimaging, Where you can look at the brain and how and the activation pattern in the brain before they got the intervention, and compare that to after they got the intervention, and see what's changed and what brain areas are responsible for the change in the behavior that you see. And then, what can
1: you do with that information? Then, like, how do you you judge the um, the whatever it is you had them do? You can say, oh, that really worked,
2: or that didn't work. Right, so there are a couple of things we can do um, with that information. Um, one is to just better understand how, let's say, memory in this in this example, how memory works. Um, so there's a scientific aspect to it. You know, we we changed memory function, and look, these are the areas that were that were changed, and that's that's useful for just scientific knowledge. Um, clinically, though, we can also go in and say, okay given that these subjects got better at at memory, at their, you know, their, um, recall of information and given that these particular brain areas were involved in that, um, in, in that performance increase, maybe if we activate them more, the, the effect will be even larger. And so maybe we can use that information to then go back and fine tune the intervention and make it even more effective.
1: Hmm. And in this case, is there ever a case where drugs are involved in that? Like
2: you can, or, or is it all sort of physical activity that? So we have a yeah we have looked at a number of different things and and we have some drug studies um, that we've done and are doing um, as well because that can be we know that you know um, pharmacological interventions are useful and um, powerful. And so, yeah, we have some studies looking at that too. Um, but um, some of the most powerful things that we've found have been things like physical exercise and uh, and also um, teaching people to you know teaching people effective ways to encode information, which they which is applicable to anybody right it's not
1: just it is. to people that have a condition or have a disease it's 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 figuring out how the brain works the best way regardless of what the situation is and, it, and it's
2: applicable again backwards to to anyone that's correct yeah. yep yep this is all stuff that you get taught in uh, you know <laughs> fairly introductory psychology courses because we know how how memory works we know what the what the most effective way is to encode information and that's just more deeply you encode it, um, the better you're going to recall it. And so if I ask you to remember three words, you might say to yourself, okay, I'm just going to repeat those words over and over again, um, which is a very common way to try to remember information, but a very ineffective way because it's very, it's very um, shallow. Whereas if you encode it more deeply by trying to generate a picture of those words or trying to think about times that you've encountered those words in your own past, well, that's a much deeper level of encoding and and you're gonna re- recall those words better. And
1: are those different methods using different parts
2: of the brain? The yes. one that's so it the more is using. Okay, go ahead. The more um The more areas of the brain you use, the more the deeper the encoding is gonna be and um the larger the network is gonna be. That might not be true actually. Yeah the larger the network's gonna be that's that's gonna support the later recall of those words. So for example, when I want to recall, when I'm driving and I wanna remember something, um, I know I will forget. If I I just say, oh, I should remember this. (laughs) I know I will later forget. I'll even forget that I tried to remember anything. Um, And so I just take my finger and I write out the word on my leg. um, Because that means that I have to think about how it's spelled I have to figure out how to how to make those words, make those letters on my leg and um and I get the sensory feedback as well and that ends up being a very, you know, a much deeper level of encoding and I can rem- and I remember it later. I totally forgot my headsets and Jody said to me, "Don't forget your headsets."
1: And I was like, "Okay, I'm going to go get them right now." And by the time I got back to my desk, didn't have them. Now I'm here without my headsets. Um so let's talk specifically about fatigue for a second, because you do a lot of work with fatigue, right? I do a lot of work yeah. with fatigue. So fatigue for me is like physical fatigue is I worked out too much, which doesn't happen often. Mental fatigue, I thought too much in a particular day, also doesn't happen too much. And But but then I can go home and I can watch a black and white movie and I can take a nap and in a couple of hours I'll feel better. But that's not what you're studying so much, right? It's, it's a different level of fatigue that you're talking about.
2: So, well, it, that is what we study. Um, mm-hmm. And... But it is also different, so let me explain that a little bit so So we study two different types of fatigue we We study mental fatigue and physical fatigue, and so physical fatigue is the fatigue you feel after you work out or after you run a marathon, mm-hmm. and mental fatigue is the kind of fatigue you might feel after you do your taxes, right um, and so and for for most of us we we do exactly what you do. We rest. We go, we do some other activity, and after a while, we're, we're refreshed and we're ready to go again. Um, but for individuals who've had brain injury or disease, that's not the case. Um, they they have that fatigue, let's say the mental fatigue, and they rest, and they get up to go again, and it's still there. And so just um, maybe it's a little bit less in the morning than in the evening, but it's there all the time. Um, and... And so that's what we're studying. We're studying what you might call pathological fatigue or this fatigue that does not go away.
1: And is it, is it re- uh, real is the word I want to say, but it's not really the word I want to use. Is it, is, it a, is it a fatigue that's like in your head or is it a real fatigue or do you know what I'm trying to say? Is it, go ahead. So, say something and save me here. Yeah.
2: Well, okay. So everything is in your head. Okay, (laughs) Um, You know, your your brain is underlying all your behavior and all your emotions and all your feelings. And so absolutely, it's in your head just because everything is in your head. Um, So it is real. um, And maybe what you're asking is, is it comparable? Is the fatigue that an individual with traumatic brain injury feels comparable to the fatigue you feel? Yeah, yeah. Um, And I think that it is qualitatively the same, but there's more of it so it's quantitatively different. Um, and, but I think it's the same
1: stuff. And why doesn't the black and white movie and the nap help the person with uh, TBI or and, and it helps me? What's the difference there?
2: We're not totally sure about that. We have some ideas, um, one of which is that the areas that we found to be associated with fatigue are dependent on dopamine, and we think that maybe their the dopaminergic circuits are damaged. Um, in, for example, multiple sclerosis or, or traumatic brain injury. Hmm. Um, another, another idea, which is not, these two ideas are not mutually exclusive, is that after something like multiple sclerosis or TBI, everything takes more energy to do. So the brain has to work harder just to get even relatively simple jobs done just because it's damaged. And so the information doesn't flow through it with the same sort of ease and fidelity that it would in an uninjured brain. So your cognic- cognitive control has to work harder.
1: Yes. Look at that. You there you go. Me, you taught me. <laughs> yeah. Um, how did you... Is there is Was fatigue, studying fatigue, a natural outgrowth of everything else you did coming up to that? Or was it something you discovered separately.
2: No, it was something I discovered separately. So when I came to Kessler, um I I had my own line of research which which had to do with cognitive control. Um but John DeLuca was here and still is here and one of his um interests, very strong interests is in fatigue and so uh, I started working on that because I was working with John. Right, right. And you took to it obviously.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, because <laughs> it did kind of fit in with other things you were studying, right? It, I yep. mean, with generally looking at the brain and, yep, so absolutely. it wasn't too far of a stretch. Yep. Um, now we talked a little bit about TBI and we talked about MS and and I'll throw in uh, spinal cord injury. Um, do do does fatigue cross all of those conditions and does it cross it in different ways?
2: So. Yes, I mean um, spinal cord injury. I'm not as knowledgeable of the literature there, but you certainly you find fatigue to be prevalent after a stroke, for example, um, and after um, other kinds of brain injuries mm-hmm. and um, and diseases. So, for example, in Parkinson's disease, fatigue is a is a warning sign that you might have Parkinson's disease.
1: So cross conditions is is it is it the same?
2: Actually, we're finding that there are differences across conditions. Um, so we started out this research looking at fatigue in multiple sclerosis and in traumatic brain injury, and although those are very different um, diseases or injuries, um, they end up with some really strong similarities. So in both cases, the white in both cases the white matter in the brain is damaged. In traumatic brain injury, it's damaged because you've had an injury. In MS, it's damaged because of these um, plaques that develop in your brain. Um, And so, although they have very different causes, they end up looking very similar. And for those two diseases, the fatigue does look similar. But maybe that's not a surprise because the you know the damage to the brain ends up being sort of similar. We've also looked at fatigue in uh, veterans who um, have Gulf War illness after returning from the first Gulf War, and for the, and for them, um, their fatigue, though they suffer from fatigue just like folks with MS, it looks like their brain is is the fatigue associated the brain areas associated with air fatigue is a little bit different than in MS or in TBI.
1: Well, I want to talk about that, uh, the Gulf War uh, illness uh, thing. And for once one second though, uh, I want to just ask is, does, do these effects cut across a- age or are you studying whether it's age related or race related or even uh, gender related or income related?
2: We have not looked at that. And I would like to look at that. Yeah. Um, the I've looked at it um a little bit and not really carefully <clears throat> I've looked at it because our veterans with gulf War illness are are older they're all in the, getting to be you know in their fifties and sixties by this point and um so I've looked at the their differences in their fatigue uh, relative to younger people that we've scanned but i haven't I haven't had enough data to really look at that properly yet. Well,
1: let's look at the Gulf War illness then. Because when I came here and I saw we were studying, we were recruiting people for Gulf War illness. I was like, wait a second, when was that? (laughs) That was in the 90s. That was like, wait, I have the date. 90, yeah, 1990, August 1990 started. Tell us what Gulf War illness is and then why it's uh, something that you're studying.
2: Right, so uh, in the early nineties, uh, we we sent soldiers over to the Persian Gulf to um, to fight Saddam Hussein, and um, about twenty five percent of them later on complained of um, a constellation of um, symptoms that got called Gulf War illness, and that included cognitive um, complaints, fatigue. Widespread pain, um, symptoms that were sort of similar to fibromyalgia but not identical. They were sort of similar to chronic fatigue syndrome but not identical. And um, and this, you know, twenty five percent of your of your soldiers can start complaining of something. You go and look at it, and the military did, but they were unable to find anything that was. The common factor that was the smoking gun, so to speak, Um, because one soldier would, you know, would report having Gulf War illness, and the guy who was standing next to him the whole time when he was deployed was fine. So there was no like single cause that seemed to explain why some soldiers got Gulf War illness and others didn't, which made it very difficult. Makes very difficult to study. It still makes it difficult to study. what we wanted to know was, um, is the fatigue, you know, what does the fatigue look like in this population? You know, does the brain activation associated with fatigue in this population look like? Uh, and we found that that fatigue is, um, associated with areas having to do with cognitive control, um, in their brain. And so it's like they have to exert more control sort of all the time. Uh-huh. Um, to, to get through the day which suggests that there is something you know that their brains have to work harder for some reason and i don't know what that reason is um but it also validates their their experience because mm-hmm. you know if if you if i say to you that i'm fatigued you might take my word for it or you might you might doubt me i mean there's nothing you, you can't see my fatigue i would say we're all um, tired pal <laughs> right and so um you know, to be able to actually show this brain activation and show that it's different than in, you know, veterans who do not, who are of the same age and also had the same combat exposure, but who do not um, have Gulf War illness. You know, that's pretty powerful because that, that validates what these guys have been saying for, you know, are, all these years.
1: Are there? Yeah. And, and that's huge to those guys. Yeah. That's got to be huge to, to be validated like, oh, this is not in my head. Right. even though everything's in your head. Everything's it's in your not, head. not in my head. Um, I'm not imagining it is what I should say. Um, is is it a war thing or was it a, a Middle East because you were in the desert or because you said it had to do with using might, might possibly have to do with just using your brain on overdrive because you're in a war situation. Is, is there a Vietnam War illness? Is there a World War II war illness? Or was that just overlooked do you think?
2: Well okay so there are a couple things in that. So when I say that that brain areas associated with cognitive control are more active in these veterans. I mean now. So I don't know that that was the case then. Um, So now all these years later when we scan them and they report more fatigue, there's more brain, more brain activation in areas associated with cognitive control. Uh Um, So I I don't know about the cause. Um, There is some evidence that um, the soldiers coming back from Afghanistan also have similar complaints. A proportion of them, uh, I don't know what, you know, whether it's twenty five percent in that case too. But there is sort of anecdotal evidence that it's not confined to that conflict, mm-hmm. the Gulf War conflict. Mm-hmm. It's it's wider. Um, and is it just? I don't mean to ask too many questions about
1: this, but I'm fascinated. Is it something that manifested itself as they were? over there or is it something that in some like-
2: cases yes this is and in some cases no and this is another reason why it's difficult to uh to pin it down because some veterans or some soldiers who are now veterans um started to feel these effects almost immediately and others were deployed and came back and uh, symptoms developed only later when they were when they were back in in mm. our country and what got you into the, to studying this?
1: Was it is it a, a veterans thing for you, or is it just a fatigue thing, or like what points you in this direction?
2: Well, so the East Orange VA, which is um, close by, um, contacted us and was interested in forming collaborations with us. Um, and more specifically, there's um, there's a study center there called the War Related Illness and Injury Study Center. That is devoted to studying medically unexplained illnesses mm-hmm. like Gulf War illness or chronic fatigue syndrome, and um, given our interest in fatigue, it seemed a natural fit. So that was that was kind of it was easy you know, how it came about.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And have you um, did you have you determined anything? Or are you still studying? And is it hard? I'm asking so many questions at once. And is it hard to get volunteers because,
2: like you said, that population is getting older. So for the Gulf War illness, um, we we've finished our first study, um, and we're we're ready to to start our next one. And our next one, we want to look at the interaction of physical fatigue and mental fatigue um, in these veterans because they they have both, and we don't know whether those two things are independent of each other or whether there's a common. Um, like a common denominator um, that makes makes them prone to both types of fatigue. Mm-hmm. So that's what we want to study next. Um, they are getting older; it's true. Um, these those veterans are you know they're troopers, um, really, honestly, literally, <laughs> literally and, figuratively, and figuratively, yes. yes. Um, and uh, and they want to know what's wrong, and they want to help the other golf veterans who suffer from the same thing. So they're really motivated to help. So it's not, it's not so hard to find them or it's not so hard to convince them to participate. Once we find them, Mm -hmm. the the harder thing is to, is to find them. Actually, Let them
1: know we exist and that we have a study going on. Yeah. Which if you go to our website, right at the top, right, there's a button, join a study. So you can click that and see what studies we have, especially uh, with any, with anything we're working on, but particularly with golf war illness. Um, The, is there, this isn't a fair question, but so what have you learned about fatigue, Glenn? (laughs) So I'm trying, like, is there some things that, that the takeaways that are big takeaways since you've been working on fatigue that you can share?
2: Like, here's, here's a couple things that we do know. Well, we do know it's a real thing and there are real measurable changes in your brain um, when you are experiencing fatigue. So, um... That's one important thing because mm-hmm. it's not just veterans with a call for illness who, who are doubted when they say they're fatigued. I mean, right. um, folks with MS, you know, their family members are not always as, uh, understanding as perhaps they could be. Right. Right. Um, and that so,
1: validation too. I don't mean to interrupt you, but the validation again is, is important to, to, to patients, to people living with these conditions. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes.
2: Um, so that's an important thing. And then, um, and we have found that the areas associated with fatigue are the same areas um, that are associated with uh, motivation and reward, and so that's that's potentially very um, useful to know because you can start to develop um, interventions to maybe um, capitalize on that to alleviate fatigue. So whether so, those areas are also they re, are those areas are also reliant on dopamine. And so maybe a dopaminergic um, pharmaceutical intervention might help, uh, and maybe also endogenous dopamine could help by, for example, giving people rewards. Um, and so when you and I go grocery shopping, maybe we feel good about having completed, you know, completely gotten through our list. But maybe if you you know you had a cell phone that uh, when you clicked off the last item you know it like cheered and there were fireworks. Oh, I was like, hoping for ice cream, but okay. <laughs> like maybe that would be, um, you know, that would make that reward that, that little bit better, and um, we'd give your brain a shot of dopamine. It would certainly give your brain a shot of dopamine and mine. But if that happened in someone with MS, maybe that would also that shot of dopamine would also reduce fatigue.
1: Right. Have we have we Change the way we're studying fatigue, and this is—I'm going to lead into the whole um, Kessler Foundation uh, fMRI. But ha- just in general, have we have we changed the changed the way that we're studying fatigue? Has, has, has the science of studying it developed in a certain way, or leaning in a certain direction? Like, oh, we're all going here now.
2: There have been changes, um, thankfully, because there are two. Because we, we've started to distinguish between different types of fatigue. And so we've always distinguished between mental fatigue and, and physical fatigue, or we have for many years distinguished between those two types of fatigue. but there's also um, what we call state fatigue and trait fatigue. and so trait fatigue is you know is this concept of how, give, how how much are you given to having fatigue? And so to get at that question, I might ask you questions like, over the past two weeks. How much fatigue have you felt? And that would give me an idea of, you know, how much you're given to having fatigue. Um, And a lot of research into fatigue has used that kind of questionnaire, which is perhaps not as sensitive as it could be because there are a lot of reasons why you might say you have, have had high fatigue. If you just, you know, or haven't been feeling very good for the past two weeks, maybe you would say you've had more fatigue and... Maybe it doesn't have as as much to do with fatigue as we might think. Mm-hmm. Another the other kind of fatigue um, is state fatigue, or the fatigue you're feeling in the moment, and so that's the kind of that's the kind of fatigue that we study here. Um, and we study it we study that because uh, I think that it's more accurate because I'm asking you just to tell me how much fatigue you're feeling right right here and right now, and not to try to somehow estimate the amount of, of fatigue you felt over the past two weeks right. which I think is a very difficult task um, and also we induce fatigue and so we have we give people tasks that fatigue them and we ask them how fatigued they are at intervals and then we see what changes in the brain as their fatigue changes and that's a that's proven to be a very useful and powerful approach
1: and then the Kessler Foundation. Let's talk about the fMRI. Has had the first, I think, if I'm, my research is good, MRI devoted to research. So we have a MRI machine in the basement that is right. devoted to research. It doesn't. It's not like anybody else is using it for anything else. There.
2: So we've had the first one devoted to research in a rehabilitation facility. Ah, okay. Good. Yeah. Good to know. Yes.
1: So how did that come about? Like, and and that's why you came here to to. Be to, in charge of
2: that to be in charge of the neuroimaging effort. Uh, it was that was years before um, we convinced the board to buy to build the MRI center. Right, um, but we did convince them to do that, and um, there were a number of people involved in that in that endeavor, and I was one of them. And um, yeah, and so we um, refurbished what used to be a. Aquatherapy therapy pool at the kessler institute for rehabilitation uh, and we put a magnet in that space and now we have a neuroimaging center devoted to research
1: and um oh we should give props to rocco hortensio yeah who is is it, that's who it's named after that's who it's
2: named after he's on the board of select medical and select medical um it Owns a, a a number of hospitals around the country, and um, including the one here, um, the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. And uh, he donated um, money towards establishing our center. So, and
1: so, what's the what's the benefit of having that on the property? Uh,
2: that it makes the research we do into the mechanism underlying the uh, rehabilitation interventions we come up with. It makes that research much easier um, because we have the scanner right here and we're in control of the sequences we run and um, the hardware that, we're, that we use. And it really sort of streamlines um, the research we're able to do here. And you don't have to get in line. You don't have to get in line. That's right. (laughs) Which is nice too. Yes, in many in many places they uh, they have a scanner that's that does some clinical scans, which is lucrative, and then any leftover time goes to research, which means that you know that um, there's less. No one's motivated for that for research than for clinical.
1: And what makes it a, a, a an fMRI? What's what like? Tell me tell me about when you're when you're actually because you just you lay in it like you would a scanner or like an mri yes. that if you were having your brain examined or something uh but what makes it functional what makes it
2: so the functional part is just um it's just a different sequence and um so with fMRI with an mri ma- machine you can um acquire data in different ways and it's Essentially, the the scanner runs different software packages mm-hmm. um, to that, and these software packages manipulate the um, the proton, the protons in the hydrogen atoms in your body in different ways. Mm. Um, and if we look at the density of water, that will give us an a an, an anatomical scan, um, and we can get high resolution anatomical scans looking at that. And if we use a different sequence, we can look at the iron in your blood and sort of track where that's going, and that is what enables us to look at function.
1: And is it in real time?
2: We can do real-time fmRI we're getting we're getting some protocols up and running to do that. Um, most of the work that we do we do we have people come in and do an experiment and we acquire the data and then we analyze it later. Um, but yeah, increase but we are now building out the capability to do real time FMRI. So we'll be able to give people feedback um, in the moment, so to speak.
1: And so tell me how, like give me a, like a simple sort of how how it would play out. Like so what what the task is and how does somebody do a task and then how you gather that data.
2: Well so if we go back to memory, which mm-hmm. is probably an easy one to to think about. Uh, if I asked you to remember three words, um, and then and you just repeated them to yourself, I didn't tell you how to remember them. I just told you to remember them, um, and you just repeated them to yourself. Then later on, if I asked you to recall those words, you would find that they weren't there, mm-hmm. and and you wouldn't know that you had you had used a, a poor strategy until later when I asked you to recall the words. But what if I could tell you? in the moment that the strategy you you were using was a poor strategy. If I said, okay, remember these three words, and I was monitoring your brain activity, activity, and I could see that the areas associated with memory were not increasing their activity, and I could step in at that point and say, okay, try to use a different strategy, because the one you're using is not going to do it for you. Um, Then you wouldn't have to wait until later to, to find out whether or not strategy was effective. Right. So,
1: And that's, you would do that, somebody's laying in the machine, you can talk to them via intercom, right? Is that how is that how it goes down? Right.
2: So, um,
1: I'm just trying to get a picture of what it's like to be that patient or what that we would,
2: subject. Right. So what we would typically do is is not step in and tell them, um, but we would give them a graphical representation of the activity in the areas of the brain that we're interested in. So in this case, memory. And so, um they would have like a little let's say a little thermometer that represented the amount of activation in those memory areas and they would see three words and they would try to you know try to encode those and if the thermometer didn't go up they would know that the strategy they were using was not effective uh, and they should switch to something else that made the thermometer you know go up and get get warmer
1: that would drive me crazy i think <laughs> that would be very that would be a challenge i wouldn't be able to put down are there other tools that you are using, like the MRI
2: or other big tools? So we have um, an MRI-compatible EEG system, and so that enables us to acquire EEG data while we're acquiring um, fMRI data, and so that's very that's a great pairing for the reasons I said before, because the um, EEG data gives you you know millisecond level temporal information. You know exactly when things happen, but it's really hard to know exactly where they happen. And the fMRI gives you really good spatial resolution, but very poor temporal resolution. Right. And so by putting this together, we can really hone in on what's happening and where and when.
1: And that's the, is that the little uh, cap that you wear? That's... That you has put the, a,
2: all the electrodes on it? Exactly. Okay. Yep. You,
1: where do you where do you think it's going? Where do you think the the field is going, like in the next five years, next ten years? Like, what do you think you're going to be working with? What equipment are you going to be working with, and what things are you going to be looking into?
2: I think that real time fMRI is is one thing that's going to um, be increasingly important, especially for people who want to do interventions, because um, not not every strategy is is optimal. F- not you know, The same strategy will not be optimal for you as is for me, for example. Mm-hmm. And so how do we tailor certain interventions to individual differences? And um, real-time fMRI is one way to do that, um, to identify which strategy is, is most effective for each individual. So I think that's important. Uh, and then in terms of analysis, um, as computers become more powerful, we're able to, increasingly you know, we're able to mine the data um, better and better and so by using machine learning or deep learning um, we're actually able to find things in the data that we wouldn't be able to find on our own because we're not computers and we can't just sort of chunk you know kind of work through it like like a computer can um, and I think that's going to to Show us um things we didn't know were in those data, the data you've already collected, and you can just go back
1: through it and go, yeah oh, look at that exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay um last question what what keeps you here at Kessler? How many years you've been here Are you i asked you that earlier how many years yeah, have you I mean,
2: I came in two thousand and six, so it's it's been a few years now, yeah and uh and it's a great place i mean um in a lot of ways. Um, the people are great. Um, the uh, The mission is is a mission that I believe in and can easily get behind. Um, and um, we have a you know we have a board who enables us to do really good quality work, and who is interested in see in enabling us to do that work. And so um, that means that we have. The best equipment that we could ask for, which is, which is a great thing. Nice. All right. Well, thanks, Glenn. I I would say we have some of the best people too. And we do. Yeah. We
1: have, yeah. I'm I mean, pointing I, to you. I, I pointed to you when I said oh, that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, you can say that about your coworkers as yeah, well. Yeah. Totally. All right. Well, thanks, Glenn. I appreciate it. All right. Thank
0: you. For more information about Kessler Foundation, go to kesslerfoundation.org. That's K-E-S-S-L-E-R. F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N dot O-R-G. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts.